Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw when uh, you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any aff- affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, we need his help, so let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for these words here recorded for us from the Apostle Paul, reminding us of all that Christ has done, condescending down. Father, help these not just be words of information, but that they would be life-giving words, that they would change our hearts, that they would give us instruction, that your spirit would change us. Lord, give us ears to hear today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we are continuing in our sermon series through the letter to the Philippians, remember the Apostle Paul is writing to them from a Roman prison. And if you remember, uh, beginning on, we talked about how Philippi was a city that was a Roman colony, and it was kind of a very significant spot. It was a beautiful place to live, and they often viewed themselves as being a little Rome. It was a place of significance, of prominence. The people that lived there had their pride in their Roman citizenship. And as Paul writes today, he is making an appeal to that very thing. There is a unification that happens when you live in a place where you have a shared identity, a shared pride. In fact, perhaps one of the things in our country that is showing all of the divisions is that we don't have something that unites us all together as a people. Something that transcends our individual opinions. In Philippi at the time, people had great pride in their Roman identity. As Paul writes here in verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life 
be worthy of the gospel. That it carries with it this broader, very specific kind of uh, application to citizenship. Your life as a citizen. Only let your matter of citizen life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul knows that they are going to face hardships as they live in the dual citizenship that we all do. That we are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God, but we all live in our earthly kingdoms. Citizens of Rome, or America, or Fargo, or Moorhead. And at some point, those worlds begin to collide. Paul himself, being an apostle, is in a Roman prison. Actual Rome. And so these believers in mini-Rome, little Rome, are likely to face similar pressure, similar consequences for belonging to this foreign kingdom. You see, the Roman citizens were not merely political, but also had a religious aspect to it. Emperor worship was common at this time. They would have called Caesar Lord. In fact, one of the most scandalous things the Christians did was said, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They refused to worship the emperor. And as a result, they were often called atheists, which was not a compliment in their day. Although we may have different camps of people nowadays, in the Roman citizenship, to be called an atheist was to be called a very derogatory term. And so the people of God are going to butt heads with their Roman citizenship. And Paul is appealing to that same identity. But he's saying, live out your life not as a dutiful Roman. right? As, as a country that has a unified understanding of what it means to be a faithful citizen. So it is with the gospel of Christ. That there are things that ought to drive the way in which we live. It ought to inform. We ought to have pride in our identity, in our citizenship in the kingdom of God. In many ways, Philippi is just a colony of Rome. But in a similar way, the church is a colony of heaven, a colony of the kingdom of God where his people are there, gathered together, representation of something that is greater over there, further away. And their identity must be in this new heavenly reality. And Paul exhorts them, let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and I can see you, whether I'm able to get out of prison and, and come and visit you once again, or whether I am not able to, I'm absent but I can hear that you are standing firm with one spirit and one mind striving for the faith of the gospel. There are a lot of things in this passage today that are going to talk about unity. There are three ways in which the church seems to be unified in Philippi that Paul is calling them to be unified. One is theological, that they agree in the, the same mind. They believe the same things. We'll see uh, the second way in which they are to be unified is emotional in their emotions, their loves, their passions, their desires, the things that they value. And third, we'll see the practical way in which their unity works itself out. 
So theological, emotional, and practical in their unity. And here we have the first of those things, the theological unity or the unity of mind. You are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They have the same confession. They are united in the work of God's spirit, binding them together to Christ, having the same mind, the same focus, working with one another to spread this one message. Oftentimes, as we think about these different categories, theological, emotional, and practical, oftentimes we can see in which different churches unify on individual right, categories. Perhaps in our tradition, we are mostly unified in our theology. That is the thing that brings us together. We have robust, lengthy confessions of faith that help us to say these are the things that we all agree on. We believe the Bible teaches this. Other traditions would say we don't need to be as unified on theology as much as we just need to be loving Jesus, right? It's about emotional connection. Perhaps there's a tradition that is more concerned about doing good works, the way we ought to live. We have to be like Jesus, and that's the thing that unifies us. We're not particularly emotional. We're not particularly theological. And the error in all of these different ways isn't that there isn't unity. In fact, the greatest error we can have is to not have any unity with anybody. That's perhaps the most ironic part of the non-denominational church movement. Some people like to think of denominations as being divisive. But it's actually the opposite. Because it's to say, I've found other people that I believe the same thing. We have the same values. We practice the same faith. And to not affiliate with anybody is to say, I don't agree with anybody. But all of these individual ways, on their own, is insufficient. And that's why Paul doesn't just stop here talking about how they ought to have the same mind. This use of one mind is actually used ten times by the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians. The one mind, same mind, agreement. Now, indeed, I'm sure there are disagreements on some issues. But what we have here is obvious. It is agreement in the gospel. Agreement on who Christ is. And they need to be in agreement because when the pressure comes, that will be tested. And we see that picking up here in verse 28. Don't be frightened by anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign of, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but that you should also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The pressure is going to come. They shouldn't be afraid. Well, okay, that means something bad must be happening if there's a sense in which they will be prone to be afraid. In fact, this word frightened carries even uh, an idea of like freaking out, panicking. It's often used in classical Greek to talk about a stampede. 
It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Don't freak out when you are oppressed, when your enemy comes. Don't panic. Don't go running. See, Paul is calling them to live this life that's going to be so countercultural to their, uh, their uh, culture and their time in Philippi that the only way they're going to be able to do it is that if they're unified together as a church. Left to their own devices, they will run and panic. Left to their own sense of what is right or wrong about who God is and how they ought to interact in their culture, they will likely crumble. And so he's calling the church to be united, to stand side by side, standing firm. He says that uh, the clear sign of their destruction, that these opponents, these people who are going to come and oppress the church, who are going to say bad things, who are going to take away their livelihood, who are probably going to put them in jail like they put Paul in jail. Going to be a sign of their destruction, but it's a sign for them of their salvation, which we think is so backwards. Can you imagine your life falling apart, everything that you hold dear being threatened or taken away, being put in a prison like Paul, and thinking, This is a sign of my salvation? That's not how we think about the work of God. We think if things go well, God is happy with us. But here, the people aren't just standing and finding themselves in circumstance. It is for the sake of the gospel that they are experiencing these hardships. Indeed, if you are a terrible employee and you get fired from your job, that is not a sign of your salvation. But if you are standing firm on the word of God and that causes you to lose your livelihood... Perhaps it is a sign that God has given you the same grace he gave to many saints that come before you. The same grace he gave to Paul he is going to give to the Philippians. They are going to suffer. They are going to feel the pain that God will provide them, the grace. And it is from God. And it says here in verse 29, it's so, once again... The juxtaposition here is so countercultural to our understanding. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should believe in him. Well, that sounds good. But not only believe. It's been granted that you could believe. Praise God. But also suffer for his sake. Engaged in that same conflict Paul is suffering for. There was no easy believism at this time. Christianity wasn't even a recognized religion. For a while, it flew under the radar of Judaism. Paul was preparing the church to suffer well, to trust in God's work in deliverance, perhaps not even in a momentary deliverance. Paul's not even sure if he's going to live or die. And yet he said, it's going really well for the spread of the gospel. He says, when you suffer, it's going to be evidence that your salvation is true because God is sustaining you in your suffering. In fact, it's a privilege that for the name of Christ, whom you believe in, you will suffer. But we can't do this alone. In fact, we don't suffer much in our current moment for belonging to Christ. Perhaps that may change in the days ahead. 
And we ought to be reminded that we are inheritors of a faith that has come through much suffering. In fact, we belong to a Savior who suffered, which will be the root for all of our understanding of this unity. As we move into chapter 2, verse 1, we see Paul kind of shift a little bit and talk about some of the things that the Philippians likely have experienced, right? They're encouraged in Christ. They have comfort and love. They've participated in the work of the Spirit. If they have any affection and sympathy, they want to make Paul full of joy. They should have the same mind, the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Here we begin to see the shared affections, the shared love. When the world around them hates them, they will find refuge in the church. This encouragement in Christ, this comfort in God's love, this participation in the Spirit. They will have the same love. Verse 2. This is their unity in emotions, unity in values. It's the only thing that can allow you to persevere, persevere through hardship. Indeed, we want to have our theology straight, but the only way that you can continue down a path is if you can value what's on the other side of it. Because you know it's worth it, because there's something intrinsically in your heart that God has done to carry you forward. And it brings Paul joy that they would be of the same mind and the same love. And then he begins to go back to this idea of selfish ambition that we talked about last week. He talked about people who were preaching from selfish ambition and rivalry. And Paul here of course, brings it back up to tell them that that is not the way that we ought to live our lives. And as Paul describes what these relationships look like in the church, it is the opposite of everything we've ever thought about ourselves. Selfish ambition can take many forms. We all, at our core as individuals, place ourselves first. Or perhaps if we're really humble, we'll place our family equal to us. It is part of our fallen nature. We seek self-preservation. We seek to care for ourselves and, of course, those whom are closest to us. But ultimately, I think what Paul is getting here, and we'll see as he gets into the latter part of this verse, many of us claim a place of authority and privilege in our own lives That belongs only to one person, and that is God alone. We view ourselves as ones who ought to be served, ought to be recipients, ought to be comfortable, ought to make the decisions. I know that's how often how I maybe don't think it in the moment, but as I reflect back, realize that's how I live my life. It's what I want for dinner. It's what I want to do this weekend. It's rare that I stop to think 
and say others are more significant than myself. Indeed, Paul says in verse 4 that we can look to our own interests. It would be silly to not eat anything or to not do anything we don't want to do, but that we also look to the interests of others. This non-selfish ambition, selfless ambition, or perhaps no ambition whatsoever, including the word self, no conceit, instead a call to humility, counting others as more significant than yourselves. Once again, it's an impossible thing for us to wrap our minds around. Perhaps for two reasons. One, we think too highly of ourselves, and two, we think too lowly of others. Oftentimes, as we enter the church, as we grow in our faith, we are able, at some level, to begin to grow in holiness and be able to put to death things we do in our lives that are apparent and wrong. And that's a good thing. But along the way, what also must be happening as the Spirit of God is at work in our hearts is it goes beyond this surface-level action-type living and instead digs deeper into our heart motivations. Uh, One commentator explained how the Apostle Paul, if you read all of his writings chronologically, you can see this play out. First, he begins by saying he is the least of the apostles, which you can think, okay, you were the last in, you used to persecute the church, but that's still a pretty elite group, right? There's 12 plus Paul. He goes on to say that he's the least of all the saints. Okay. Paul's drone in his humility even further. Now he, he counts himself even as the lowliest in the church, even though he's an apostle. What's one of the last things Paul says to describe himself? He's the chief of sinners. Not only is he the lowliest apostle, the lowliest of the saints, but he is the worst of the worst. Paul has become so intimately aware of his sin because he has seen God's grace in a way that is proportionate to it. How can God have saved a persecutor of the church like Paul, a wretched, sinful man, to become an apostle? The more he grew, the longer he wrote, the more he became aware and wrote down how he was not all that great. His humility grew. Indeed, that's something we ought to pray God reveal to us as we grow in our holiness, as we begin to know God more intimately, that we would begin to see how deep our sin truly is. But furthermore than that, counting others as more significant than ourselves is to see how God views his people. Think about it. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about loving your neighbors. He's not saying, think of all these other people out there. He's talking about the church. As you look around the church and you compare yourselves to other people, you might think, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy. Or, did you hear what she did? No. God calls the church his bride, his beloved, his treasured possession. Sons and daughters in God's kingdom. And so as we grow in our 
understanding of our own sin and the grace we've been shown, we would never think of ourselves highly. And at the same time, when we look around at other people and we realize what God has said about them, the place that they have been brought into because of Christ, we should never look down our noses at anybody. Instead, we ought to continue to grow in humility, to grow in love, to grow in our value of Christ. This begins to hit all of those practical outworkings. How do we spend our time? How do we view other people? Do we consider them more important than ourselves? Absolutely not. (laughs) But this is what the Apostle Paul is encouraging his readers to do. It is what God's Spirit is working in their midst. And it's necessary as this pressure is going to come. Right? This is going to be difficult. They need to make sure they've got their one-mindedness together. They agree that it's worth suffering for this. And that when it happens, we're going to be prone to say, it's your fault. No. God is knitting his people together in theological unity, in doctrine, in emotional connection, in participation in the spirit and how they live their lives together in unity. So how are we supposed to even think about living like this? Well, Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ in verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, Christ's mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know who's actually justified in being selfish in their ambitions and conceit? God alone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the most high position possible. You want to think you're important? Think about Jesus, the Son of God. Though he was in the form of God laid it down and emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant or a slave, becoming a creature in his world. Talk about humility. This is the humiliation of Christ, to go from the transcendent God to his creation, to being a servant. And then not only that, he became a man, and he finds himself as a man, he says... I'm going to be obedient to the Father's will to die. And not only just to die, but to die on a cross. The most shameful way to die. A way in which the Bible calls a curse. Our Savior, our faith, Our identity, our citizenship is in him. The one who, even though he is able to claim all of these things, he is the one who ought to have been served 
instead served his people and humbled himself so far down in degradation that he even died on a cross. This is the humiliation of our Savior. This is what it looks like to belong to him. And when we are prone to think pridefully about ourselves, to think ourselves better than others, we ought to be reminded of the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus didn't have to come. He chose to come. He willingly came. Not only that, he had to come and die for you to even be included. How great are we? We are so great we deserve death on a cross. And when we all realize that we all deserve death on a cross, our hearts are changed. We are united in a way that is transcendent of our current suffering, our current situation. We can have the same values. We can have the same trust, the same mind. We can count others as more significant because we see ourselves in the cross. It is utterly humiliating to express that Jesus had to die for me. It was offensive to the Greeks that they would have to have somebody die for their sins. They're not that bad. But when we confess with true faith, with one mind, and we place our trust in Christ, saying that without him, without his condescension to us, without his sacrificial death, we are hopeless. Well, we begin down the path of humility, the path of unity. And we see in verse 9, as Christ humbled himself, God has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is ultimately the hope that Paul calls the church to rest in. He's reminding them that don't be surprised if you suffer. I'm in jail. You'll probably be in jail as well. Not only that, you belong to Christ who was put to death by the same government. And then you live your lives in a selfish way, and yet you belong to the most humble Savior of all of history. And the hope isn't that you're necessarily going to be delivered. You have hope in your unity with one another that you might be able to stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel. Encourage one another. Participate in the work of the Spirit. But ultimately, you know that even your oppressors, as they come to take everything away from you, that the day will come. God has highly exalted our crucified Savior. And that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. The day of reckoning is to come. And it will be for their judgment the way that they treated God's people. And then in that day, we will see the salvation. We will see the way in which God has worked even the difficult things in our lives for his purpose. We will have the joy that the Apostle Paul had that, hey, this being in jail thing is working out really good for the gospel. We will have the blinders removed. 
but we don't have to wait till that day. The Spirit is at work in our midst, revealing these truths to us. May God give us the vision to see those things, to trust in these words, to die to ourselves, to follow after our suffering Savior, to willingly suffer alongside him, to live as his united people, both in our confession and in our emotional heart values and in the way we live our lives together. We need his grace to do it. But he has given us his example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ unifies us by his spirit, by his example. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to be united as a church here, that we would confess with one mouth the true faith, that we would have our hearts knit together in your love, and that we would learn to live as those who count others as more significant than ourselves. Father, help us to be rooted in what Christ has done for us. Help us to see his glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.